you haven't been following Conversations with Shonda, please visit conversationswithshonda.org. If you're in the Minneapolis area, be sure to check out Conversations with Shonda live. Enjoy the show. I had a professor at Howard who, unknown to me, he began to apply the pressure in class. He began to push me. Now, I have to admit that um, he was my professor. I really got uh, more than upset. I experienced for the first time in my life the feeling of hate. And now it's toward a black man, and I'm in a black seminary. You can just imagine the, the internal tension that requires in my own group. So I went, finally said, you know, I can't, I just can't sit in this spell. I went to his office and I asked for his forgiveness for feeling that way. And he said, I've just been waiting for you to come. That made me mad again. I'm like, here I am, on my, as it were, on my knees asking for your forgiveness. But he, he could still sense that this work in me was not yet finished. He told me what he had been doing. And then he knew if I was really called to do the work of racial justice, this was simple what I dealt with <laughs> at seminary, then he needed to prepare me for when I went out. I'm Shonda with uh, Conversations with Shonda, uh, part of the Minneapolis Foundation podcast. I am with um, Curtis DeYoung, and I am just going to have you jump in and introduce yourself. I'm Curtis DeYoung. I'm the uh, CEO of the Minnesota Council of Churches. I've been in this position for two and a half years. The Minnesota Council of Churches represents uh, primarily the Protestant churches uh, in the state of Minnesota. Uh, it includes the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, the historic African-American denominations that are here, and what people call the mainline Protestant churches. That's really awesome. So I was reading a little bit about um, your background, and so you were raised in Kazoo, in Kalamazoo. Yes. Um, my son played football there briefly, and um, it's, it's quite an interesting place. And so in one of your books, you describe um, being kind of in this community of people that wasn't very diverse. Correct, yeah. So I was actually born in the North, uh, west corner of Indiana, an area affectionately known as Amish country. Mm. was not Amish, but my father was a pastor of a rural church, so very, very white. And then uh, we moved to Michigan, and we lived in the one suburb that Kalamazoo had okay. called Portage, which was, uh, when I was there, my graduating class of 400 students was 99% white. There were three black males in my class. Um, so... Very Dutch, so it wasn't just white, it was a kind of whiteness, uh, Dutch community, and uh, that very much uh, shaped the way I was raised. Yeah, and you lived there your entire um, school? Most of my, yeah, up through graduating high school. Okay, and then I read that when you were about 12, you watched um, King, mm -hmm. um, the, uh, is it Montgomery to Memphis? Yes, yes. And so that was your first introduction to Martin Luther King? Yeah, so this was two years after his assassination that I watched that. Um, I'm living in a northern white community. King was not a part of our conversation. I'm sure my parents knew who he was, but none of my schooling or anything. So we're sitting down, my father and I, one night watching public television, and on comes from Montgomery to Memphis, three hours of news clips from the civil rights movement focused around the Martin Luther King story. And I was shocked uh, by what I saw. Um, as I reflect back on it now, I, I believe that as white people, we still know something's not right at some deep level. But at a conscious level, this was shocking to me, the segregation, the poverty. So what I did as a 12-year-old is I went to the store, bought every LP, LP album of Dr. King preaching that I could find, every biography that I could find on King and began reading and listening. And if you were one of my high school teachers and you assigned a paper, I wrote it on Martin Luther King. Wow. Were your parents supportive of your newfound interest in, in Martin Luther King and the movement? 
Yeah, they uh, they were not activists, but uh, they were uh, open-minded and committed, had relationships with a uh, few black people here and there. And one of the things I noticed is that at that time period, when I was a couple years older, uh, the issue was open housing. And so they had a sign in the front window committing themselves to open housing. Um, but I don't think if we hadn't watched this show that I would have ever really had that conversation with my parents and seen that side until I was older because they were sort of quiet. You know, as an as African-American person, um, we often kind of either talk about either like funny but not funny sort of way of like, you know, anytime you get educated in school, you hear about Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks. And certainly there are a lot of African-American people that have contributed um, in, in great ways to this country. And so for me to think about you at that time period, two years out from his assassination, not knowing what do you think that this is a common thing where people are, are isolated from from history and, and specifically the history of the civil rights movement or people of color in this in this world in our in our United States? Certainly it was true then. I think it's still possible to live an all white life. Um, you you're in a white community, white friends, you go to a white church. We still hear about textbooks that are not uh, inclusive if they are, it's one paragraph or one page here and there, and it's often things like, well, this, we brought folks from the continent of Africa, and this was a good thing for them because they got civilized. I mean, just really uh, horrible kinds of misinformation and falsehood. So I think it's less possible now um, because popular culture is so diverse, um, but at the time, even the popular culture was very segregated uh, when I was raised. Now, this is I'm in a suburb of Kalamazoo, Michigan, which Kalamazoo did have a black population, about 30%, I would think, if I remember right. It was, again, very segregated, and busing was happening at that time. So there was an awareness of tensions, but not an awareness of who the heroes were, who the people were working on uh, issues of civil rights, at least in my upbringing. Yeah, so you, you go from uh, Kalamazoo and somehow end up at Howard. Yes. I, I, I mean, I know we've talked about this in the past, but you end up at Howard University, which is a historically black um, university. And uh, can you just tell us what that decision-making process was like or how you how you landed there? Sure. Um, so I went after high school, I did my uh, college in southern Indiana at, at school related to my church denomination um, and of all things it was in an area that was the Ku Klux Klan was active and David Duke was the grand dragon at the time that everyone was talking about and he's you know made a, a comeback due to black Klansmen and people knowing who he is. Um, from there I moved to New York City to work at a homeless shelter in Times Square and that was a shock very kind of diverse context. Um, I was working in a, a Catholic uh, um, Catholic organization and actually living in a Catholic faith community. Again, a real stretch as a Protestant, fairly <laughs> conservative kid. And so one Sunday I said, I've got to find uh, a church of my own denomination. So I have a few hours each week of feeling comfortable because I was being stretched on the subways, uh, at work, because we worked with mostly kids from Puerto Rican and African American communities. And so I go to church on Sunday. I didn't know my way around New York, and so I get on the um, the A train going north in Manhattan because I was going to stay in Manhattan for church, and got off at 145th and uh, got on the local, which was then called the double A train, went up to 155th, and anyone that's been to New York who's following the path knows I've now stepped out into the northern part of Harlem. I didn't know where I was because I didn't know my way around. Sunday morning, I walk into this church. It has the church name of my denomination. Little did I know I was walking into a 100% African-American congregation. So uh, surprising was it to the usher who welcomed me at the door <laughs> that she said, may I help you? Uh, an unusual greeting at a church. Uh, I told her, you know, I was this church of God, right? It's a denomination. And then she welcomed me in. Um, and for the, then I should say, then the, the pastor found out I was there and invited me even before the service uh, officially began. He invited me into his office to find out who why? I was and why are you here. <laughs> why are you lost, son? And uh, found out I was uh, planning to become a minister. 
and uh, so took me under his wing, as happens in African-American church settings. They use an apprenticeship model of training um, and apprenticed me for the year I was there. And so once a month on Sunday morning, I was taught to preach by the congregation. Um, so that's what set me up for Howard. Not knowing yet that I was going to Howard, I uh, decided to go to Union Theological Seminary in New York. I'd taken a year break and was planning to return to New York and went to D.C. for the summer to uh, do an internship at another black church in our denomination. And um, do I have to be honest? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I met the woman who's now my wife yep. at the church. Yep. And so I said, there's got to be a seminary in D.C. Because this is pre-cell phone, pre-email, you know, distance relationships. So it was a woman a that brought you to It Howard. was a woman, yeah. <laughs> a matter of the heart. Yes, uh, and she is beautiful. So, so I'm at a black church saying I need to find a seminary. And the pastors there, many were Howard University alum. So they took me over to Howard University Seminary. They didn't look at any other seminary. They took me to the seminary that they knew and loved and met the dean. And he'd previously been a dean at the seminary in New York Union where I had applied. And so within the matter of a few minutes, I was enrolled <laughs> and starting at Howard University. So was your experience um, at Howard um, shocking in any way? Or did you had you been on a journey that allowed for a level of comfort? Or did you find yourself being challenged by um, your thinking and, and your comfort? or what, what was that experience like transitioning in there? Um, well, I was the only white in the classroom most of the time. Um, it's a DC uh, in the mid 80s when I was there. It was a very black city. Uh, and um, so when what the difference I would say is that, you know, I had a, an experience in New York, which was sort of a Wednesday evening, Sunday morning, very welcoming experience and uh, so I had become more comfortable and a lot of the stereotypes I had had been dispelled. But coming to Howard um, was, I was still welcomed, but this is an academic institution that uh, is going to challenge and assess and analyze and I learned to think critically at Howard. And so what it took was the experience, which could have easily just been a one year, you know, now in my 60s, looking back fondly on that one year in Harlem, you know, like people look back on youth camp or something. Yeah, the one year uh, they spent in yeah. Mexico or right, something. Right, right. It could have been that. But what Howard did is it took that experience and uh, analyzed it, assessed it, taught me about how race operates. And being the only uh, white student often in the classroom, I heard very honest conversations about race because a lot of times when we're in multiracial context we all clean it up a little bit we don't quite say everything that we want to say but it was very blunt very transparent and I'm sure you know I'm just one person there and hopefully over time I was trusted but uh, I had the benefit of, of being able to hear that the first semester I will admit that I was quiet because uh, in most of my classes I was trying to figure out this new context, this new environment. Um, the other amazing thing about Howard Divinity School in the uh, mid-80s was Jesse Jackson was running for president the first time. A lot of the civil rights icons are alumni of Howard, so they were walking the hallways. And so what I knew of the civil rights story was the Martin Luther King story. It was greatly expanded at Howard. Um, in fact, I remember one day, a gentleman walking the hallways with a patch over his eye, and I said, who is that? And they go, who is that? That's James Farmer. He started the Freedom Rides. You should know who that is. And he was an alum of the school just back visiting. So it was an amazing kind of environment and place to be. Mm -hmm. And um, there, there's two things that um, I guess I'm thinking about. One is um, you've, you've lived a life that by all accounts looks like you've you've kind of push the boundaries um, that you've lived kind of on the edge of, of maybe comfort zones. Um, and yet it feels like you found a, a place of belonging. 
And I'm trying to think about me as African-American going into a school where I was the only person of color and wondering whether or not I would be able to find a place of belonging. And I don't, I don't really have a question or an answer to that. <laughs> I have more questions than answers. So, yes, I did find a place of belonging. My comfort grew the longer I was there. But what you have just described are two very different contexts. Um, as a white person, the minute I stopped off, stepped off campus, I had all my privilege back in place, probably still had much of it while I was there. Um, yes, I was a minority and one and only, but I wasn't experiencing racism, microaggressions, the kinds of things that people of color experience in white context. And it was important for me to figure that out pretty quickly that the minute I stepped off campus, I had more privilege and opportunity perhaps even than my seminary dean uh, as a white person. So to understand the difference, because I think that's another thing that happens to we as white people, we have these experiences, we're embraced, we're accepted in context or people of color, and uh, we think it's the same. Um, yes, there are some similarities, but it's also very different. Mm -hmm. The other is um, this idea of kind of deconstructing um, ideas and, and beliefs and stereotypes and um, placing yourself with um, people who um, may have different thoughts, and some of those thoughts could even be uh, polarizing, they could be offensive. And as we live in a time where people only want to sit with people they agree with, mm -hmm. um, you know, what is the importance actually of sitting with people that, that you don't agree with or maybe you're actually offended by? Well, it's... Uh, is there any benefit? I, I want to believe that there is. Um, we're all from the same human family, ultimately. As a person of faith, I say we're all created in the image of God. Um, and the reality is that as we are in relationship with folks or we're in places where even they're uncomfortable, we can begin to understand what has shaped folks to be a, a certain way. So, for instance, I had a professor at Howard uh, who wanted to test me. And uh, what's this? Is he just some sort of liberal white do-gooder? here, um, so I, unknown to me, he began to apply the pressure in class. He began to push me. And what he wanted to know was, could I deal with an angry black male? Hmm. Um, because he saw that some of my relationships had been with much more diplomatic African-American leaders. And because he said that you've gotta be able to deal with the full range and you got to understand that the anger is not just angry black male. It's an anger about uh, how society has positioned black people, the kind of racism African Americans experiencing, the, the gaps that we talk so much about today. And he wanted to know if I could then still stay in the conversation. Now, I have to admit that um, th he was my professor, and I was getting pushed and so forth. I really got uh, more than upset. I experienced for the first time in my life the feeling of hate. Mm -hmm. And now it's toward a black man, and I'm in a black seminary. You can just imagine the, yeah. the internal tension that requires in my own growth. So I went, finally said, you know, I can't, I just can't sit in this spot. I got to do with this. So I went to his office, and I asked for his forgiveness for feeling that way. And he said, I've just been waiting for you to come. That made me mad again. I'm like, here I am, on my, as it were, on my knees asking for your forgiveness. But he, he could still sense that this work in me was not yet finished. And I'll say it's a lifetime journey uh, to, to, to take on these kinds of issues and build these kind of relationships. But by the time I left, um, we had an exit interview when I, I left the school. And by then he said, he told me what he had been doing. He told me that it was out of a deep, a sense of care and love for me, and then he knew if I was really called to do the work of racial justice, this was simple, what I dealt with <laughs> at seminary, then he needed to prepare me for when I went out. Mm -hmm. Was he right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I know you ended up in Chicago. I know I'm truncating your your bio, sure. but you, were, you are formerly the executive director of the um, Community Renewal Society which is a historic uh, civil rights organization in Chicago. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that was located in a pretty diverse neighborhood. So the uh, community rural side worked citywide, but the uh, and it was a church-based uh, community organizing policy advocacy group. The um, core of the churches that defined the agenda were on the west and south side of Chicago, which are the historic African American communities. And uh, the season that I was there was the season of police accountability and Ferguson happening and such. So that was some of the kind of work we had. And just to add a little note, the professor at Howard, his name is Dr. Calvin Morris. And then he was my predecessor in Chicago at the Community Renewal oh. Society. Of all things, it came full circle. He was a former staff member in the last couple of years of Dr. King's work, and as King had located in Chicago for a while, he had joined the staff, but then with Jesse Jackson and some others created what was then called Operation Push, Rainbow Push. So he was quite an iconic figure. But it's amazing in the story, my storyline yeah. that here's the professor that <laughs> had taken me on in seminary. Now I'm called to replace him uh, as executive director of an organization. Incredible. The, um, so when you get there, the organization was focused on um, racial and economic justice, but it wasn't very diverse. So Chicago, um, to help folks in the Twin Cities who are listening, Chicago is two-thirds persons of color. And uh, while there are other cultural and racial groups, it, it breaks out pretty closely as one-third African-American, one-third uh, Latinx, one-third white. And so that affects everything that goes on in Chicago. Here's an organization that has uh, been working on racial justice. It was an, a long term, it was kind of a, we call a faith-based legacy, kind of a faith-based urban league. Uh, so it's a legacy organization and King actually partnered with them when he was there in the late 60s and that's what sort of shifted the organization toward becoming a racial justice organization. But the challenge was that in this entire time, and my two, two of my, my two predecessors were both African-American, 25 years of black executive leadership, the board had always been majority white. And the staff had not always been the case, but by the time I arrived, because there had been an interim period, the staff had become majority white. And now here I am coming from Minnesota, unknown, coming from an even whiter state, uh, to be the head of an organization that has an integrity problem hmm. uh, around uh, who it is as it does work for racial justice. So um, that was problematic. Mm -hmm. An integrity problem. So there's an integrity problem across a lot of the um, social sector, um, if you frame it that way, and that um, we know that despite um, much effort that uh, boards have not um, become more diverse and leadership at the top levels have not become more diverse. Why, why, do you, why do you think that that's an integrity issue? So I'll start with the organization Chicago, but I'll, I'll bring it here. Um, 25 years of black leadership and the board is still majority white. So I began to think about how how does power work in a nonprofit organization? Who, who's really the owner? It's the board. So even while you, you have black leadership at the executive level, which should be the case, um, you have a board. It's still uh, submitting to a white dominant board. Um, and so that means the board is in many ways really out of touch. I discovered that they were not even having conversations about racism at the board level let alone this is a racial justice organization. I mean, that's a problem. Uh, so just before I signed on the dotted line to move to Chicago, I discovered the demographics of the board and said, I won't come uh, unless you agree to become uh, consistent with the demographics of Chicago, two-thirds persons of color. And um, they, they agreed. Uh, and so within a year and a half, the board had uh, become majority African-American. Um, by the time I left, it was 75% persons of color, uh, two-thirds black, um, and that because that was where our base uh, primarily was. That completely changed the conversation in the organization, so then addressing uh, uh, staffing diversity that also aligned uh, happened as well. And then we did strategic planning and decided we needed a black ED, and so 
I lost my job <laughs> or worked my way out of a job is probably a nicer way to put it. And, but I knew that's what needed to happen. And uh, so all that to say is that, um, and this is what, what really brought me to this realization was the, the young activists in Ferguson and around the country, the Black Lives Matter activists, because integrity is a huge issue for them. You know, you've got to be what you are doing. Um, and so for legacy organizations um, who have kind of done it this way for so long and, and somewhat of a patronizing feel, I suppose, uh, that's sort of a wake-up call. And because we were doing community organizing, we were interacting all the time with young Black Lives Matter-style activists in Chicago who just looked at us and said, you're not real you're not you know look at <laughs> look at your organization you're not really doing racial justice work um and so so i think that the challenge for us here in the twin cities um is that there's a huge move toward uh foundations particularly um i'm on the board of the united way so i also add the united way in there too saying to the organizations that they fund uh you need to have Diverse boards, you need to people color and leadership, and I agree with all of that. I think that's all needs to happen. But if you're saying it, I want to look back and look at your board and your staff and see the same thing, to see that you really are committed to this, that because these are the organizations that you're serving through your dollars, you should look like them. I understand that foundation boards also have to connect to white money and white power and all that, which, by the way, is not where all the power and all the money is all the time. But uh, so I understand you're going to have members of your board that are connected to wealth. But I want to see that same kind of journey, that same kind of commitment that your board's doing IDIs as well as your staff. Um, you know, that's that to me, that's integrity. In yeah. The and there's there's nonprofits that will say, well, you know, that that's, you know, the same dynamics exist, which is why our board is all white, because we need to connect to power and money and resources and that they can't find people of color that bring those those things to the table. I haven't looked hard enough. They have. I haven't looked hard enough. I don't know them. Um, They're there, though. We, maybe we should start an apprenticeship program or whatever the, yeah. the things are. Um, and so what do you say to those people that say they can't find them? I say those people are there. They can be found. All I want to see at this stage is that you on a journey move in that direction. That's not going to happen overnight. Going to build a relationship. It's more challenging in the Twin Cities than it would have been for me in Chicago, given the, the demographics. But there's a huge black professional community here, um, dispersed in some ways, but can be found. Uh, yeah. Go to your church, Shonda. You'll find some folks. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, okay, so the, so let's, you were on a board that was about racial justice, that weren't talking about race, and there's other organizations that um, we know are doing the same thing, but they are talking about disparities, and in and, and some people's mind, talking about disparities is talking about race and racism. They're connected, clearly, and, and talking about them is important, first step, but again, I'm looking at your board and saying <laughs> there's some disparities right on your board yeah. that can be fixed. And so um, so I think it can be done. I just don't, uh, I just think that our, our walk and our talk have line. to line up. And do you think really like disparities is a starting point or do you think racism is the reason for disparities? Oh yeah, disparities is an outcome from racism. Okay. It's not the start, yeah, it yeah. doesn't create racism. Yeah. Right, which is like uh, we, after Charlottesville, uh, number uh, the African American bishops on the board at the Council of Churches were sort of re-traumatized and you know f struggling with that, and they said we want to meet with our white counterparts, and so we had an off-the-record meeting at Shiloh Temple on the North Side, and most of the white bishops showed up and um, had this amazing conversation. But at one point, the white bishops had a chance to share after they'd listened for a while. And they talked about, oh, we're doing all this work on white privilege. Mm. And the African-American bishops replied, isn't that wonderful? You've got the privilege to talk about white privilege. What we want to talk is about white supremacy. Mm. So it's the same kind of thing. It's the structures. And so, yes, racism creates disparities. Disparities don't create 
racism. racism. And it's the same way. White supremacy creates white privilege. If you want to get to the core, yes, talk about privilege, understand how it operates, understand that you have it, but look at the core of what needs to be addressed to actually change it. Mm-hmm. When, um, so it feels like now we're at a time where we're seeing so much racism and it's it's so pronounced that I think it's it's in some ways becoming um, it feels like more challenging to just be in any space without noticing the the microaggressions. Um, you can't be in social media. You can't watch the television. You can't uh, really be in in politics or anything. And um, I, I don't know. Probably in, in one of your books, you you talked about um, kind of struggling with the evidence of hope. And I think that there are people, and and I may or may not be one of them, that mm-hmm. say, you know, will we get through um, the uh, these times, right? Like they just feel like they keep coming louder and louder and louder, and um, perhaps we're at a tipping point. I don't know. And then you you backed it up and said, well, in some ways, there's a privilege of of being able to have hope. And then I started thinking about I don't know Harriet Tubman because I just mm-hmm. saw the movie and and saying like that you know there's been hope in in communities that have had great despair for a long mm-hmm. time. But how do, you, how do you think through something like hope and faith and, and justice? Yeah, in the Bible it talks about hope is the things you haven't the seen. The evidence of things unseen, yeah. Yep, and so um, hope for me is, a, is, is, is difficult to sustain without faith. Um, but I, I got. I mean, I think for us in this this particular time is that, with the election of Barack Obama, hope just soared. Mm. That we had actually moved into a new, <laughs> new time, and we hadn't. I mean, we had elected one, black president, uh, who served us well, but that was just a beginning. And then we had this this tidal wave response. Even before he was elected, it had begun, and now it's uh, culminated into the current situation that we're in. And the and part of it was, um, and that's the thing is that hope has to be an informed hope. So we can't just not see what's there. And what's this has allowed us to see what was already there, the kind of engagement of white nationalists uh, now in the electoral process. They were there. They just got invited back into the electoral process. So a lot of those challenges there, but at the same time, quietly, demographic change in our country is continuing. And whites are gonna drop below 50%, and uh, power will follow some later, because uh, you know the, the, the demographics will change first. But there are the trends that tell us we're still moving, despite all of the attempts to slow it down or stop it. And so for me, the, uh, you know, the, sort of the famous Martin Luther King quote, the arc of moral history uh, bends toward justice, uh, I still believe is true. In fact, I have to believe it's true. Um, and that's part of what faith, uh, faith and hope are, is that I have to believe. Uh, and that's where the movie Harriet becomes so inspiring. I saw it recently as well. And her determination um, to continue to fight on is startling in yeah, some ways. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, Desmond Tutu wrote the foreword in your book, Radical um, Reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> My co-author, Alan Busak, uh, is also one of the heroes of the anti-apartheid struggle, one of the faith leaders. And in the t- season when Nelson Mandela and his uh, generation of leaders were in prison and many others were in exile, the folks that are on the streets were Desmond Tutu and Alan Busak and, and the leadership there. And so um, Desmond Tutu is like a father to Alan Busak. So that's how that happened. I've had the opportunity to meet uh, Archbishop Tutu on a few occasions. Um, but picking a good co-writer helped uh, <laughs> that happen. <laughs> that's awesome. What is radical reconciliation? Yeah, uh, we chose the word because we were both concerned, both in South Africa and in here, that things were being called reconciliation that really were not reconciliation, or that the language had been uh, co-opted or adapted in South Africa in many ways by the political system, 
and and in our case by sort of uh, a more conservative element. Um, but we use radical in the original use of the word that it means getting to the roots. So the idea is radical regulation is to get to the roots of injustice, the things that create a need for reconciliation. So if we can get to the roots of racism, or sexism, classism, and many other isms, if we can get to the roots of that and address the roots, then reconciliation follows. Um, and uh, as both of us being biblical scholars, we looked at the first century uh, church, which was under the domination of a colonial system, the Roman colonial system. And so when they were using the language of reconciliation, as the scholars would say today, they were giving it a post-colonial meaning. They were giving it a meaning that says, uh, what does this mean in the context of, of, of colonialism? So it's, it really is, biblical reconciliation is a, a um, pro-justice kind of term. Um, you have uh, a book that you shared with me, Living Faith, How Faith Inspires Social Justice, where you lay out, I think it's 12 social justice leaders. There's several in the book. Yeah. There's several in the book. Um, and then you ask a question in there, and I'm going to, uh, I wrote it down, but I can't see it. Um, but um, I, I guess the question is, is that, well, we have leaders like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and, and others that you have mentioned and that, that someone will be writing about in the 21st century. Like, does it, does leadership organize different now? Or, or I think that's a question you asked yeah. in there. If it wasn't, it was something I thought. Yeah. One of the things I noticed across, because I studied the 20th century for this book, um, is that um, especially a sort of faith-inspired social justice leaders, we saw this move from them mostly being from the dominant culture. Uh, even a Gandhi is sort of, you know, dominant Hindu culture. Um, moving then to persons of color or people that are struggling, but mostly still male. And then by the end of the 20th century, we see uh, women emerging, but often still sort of either the child of a man who was a protest activist, somehow mentored by men in a sense. Yeah. Uh, but that's all changed now. Uh, and uh, so the, a few things I think that have changed in this, this current generation uh, is one is that um, that women are at the forefront. Uh, if you look at Black Lives Matter, you look at immigration activists uh, across the board, Native American activists, it's just a, a host of women, which is, is very encouraging. Um, second, leadership is not a singular person. It's not, a, it's not like we need to find Moses and follow. Uh, it's a shared, uh, and I think that's healthier too. Um, in the 60s, Martin Luther King's model was one that was very based on sort of a preacher model with the preachers being at the lead. But at the same time, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee had a much more egalitarian model, although it was mostly male. But um, so they said, if our leader gets killed, we have another leader ready to step up. Um, so it was very fluid. Um, and I think that's where leadership is. is. And in fact, I know when the press would go to Ferguson to try to figure out who the leader was to interview, well, they're all leaders. Um, now that has its challenges as well um, because of the diversity of perspectives and styles, but I think it is a healthier way of doing leadership. So yeah, we probably are not looking for that singular Moses type uh, leader. Doesn't mean there may not be some that emerge, but that's, we can't count on that to build a, uh, a just future. Interesting. For um, the, you know, Ferguson and the protests and what came out of that, I know you've been doing um, work on philanthropy's role in countering hate. Mm -hmm. Did um, that work, was it birthed out of that or where did, where did the, the notion of philanthropy's role in that come from? For us, it's a very much a Minnesota conversation. So we've, for 15 years, had a uh, partnership, the Council of Churches with Muslim American Society. And during Ramadan, we've uh, hosted uh, um, iftar meals, where our job as Council of Churches is to get folks uh, who've never been in a mosque or have never met a Muslim, um, many of them Christians, some Jews, other folks, in during the month of Ramadan because Mosques are very much welcoming people in to break the fast with them. Um, 
And so we usually have a thousand plus people each year that partake in that. So that's a 15-year partnership. But in the last few years, uh, the, the there's been quite a rise in hate here in Minnesota. Uh, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, racism. A lot of it's been directed toward houses of worship or people of faith, and it's being perpetrated often by people who call themselves Christians. Um, so out of that sort of frustration and how do we address this and how do we find the resources to address this, uh, Imam Assad and I, just, as we talk about it, how do we engage uh, the philanthropic community? Um, one is they're already sort of hesitant about funding religious-based organizations for uh, legitimate reasons. Uh, and, uh, and, and how do we then sort of focus that? And so, you know, we began to have conversations and have had a, a, a wonderful number of conversations, some events where we've been able to share what's going on um, and then s tell folks in philanthropy, talk to each other, figure, figure this out, um, but know that we can do some work, some partnership. And there's a number of, not just the two of us, obviously, there's a number of organizations now that are really kind of on the front lines of this work. And the, the, the old, the, one of the real challenges is now how to take some of this work into rural Minnesota and um, because that's where a lot of this is emerging. And well, the most amazing thing is that some of the, the worst cases of Islamophobia are happening in towns where there are no Muslims. Mm -hmm. And these Islamophobic preachers, as it were, are going through these towns, scaring people, giving them a lot of misinformation, um, and we know that particularly Somalis are moving around the state, and so they're getting set up for a, a horrible uh, kind of response when they move in with this. So, so we just felt that um, the philanthropy community could be a great partner, and we also thought weave this into the things that you're already doing as well. If your focus is youth, if your focus is affordable housing, um, look and see are there elements within that that you can uh, do this kind of work as well. Mm -hmm. So in a sense it was kind of a, a call out. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Um, which I, th I think we need um, ways to hold, hold each other accountable. In your, in your best imagined um, mind about where this could go and how philanthropy would lead in, is it, is it as you just described that it would be woven in and embedded? Would it be that um, that we would bring um, voice to these issues along with resources. I mean, what what is your ultimate hope, I guess, for where this could mm -hmm. lead? All of that. I mean, I think that there are certain things that philanthropy can do that we can't do. Um, and certainly in the kind of giving voice, amplifying what's already going on, uh, certainly important. A lot of the organizations on the front lines of this work need greater capacity to do it. Um, so it's sort of investments in building capacity. Um, and then it's together sort of trying to create a vision and a framework. Uh, one of the things that uh, Muslim American Society and Minnesota Council of Churches are sort of talking together because we're both, you know, sort of, we're in the church, they're in the mosque, and we're trying to figure out how you bring congregations together mm. uh, so that what we've been doing in Ramadan is a year-around sort of occurrence that people are building relationships. We found one of the most as simple as it is, but one of the most successful ways to defeat this kind of hate, because some of it's so much of it's out of ignorance and fear, is to actually build relationships. And people actually know a Muslim, uh, or a few Muslims, and have actually built relationships that radically changes. And we've seen that happen at Dar al Farouk in Bloomington, uh, which is uh, one of the mosques that we work with, um, where now there's four or five churches that are working in partnership with them and people know each other and connect, and there's still hate coming toward the mosque, but they've now got a set of partners. And so uh, often on Friday prayers, there's a bunch of Christians out there walking the sidewalks and making sure that you know it's safe for people to, to come to worship. Safe to come to worship. Yeah. Hmm. When, um uh, one of the speakers that I know that you're in contact with that's going to come and, and bring awareness is Reverend Sekou. And I have not had the pleasure of meeting him, but he will be on uh, the podcast good, upcoming. Good. He seems like quite a dynamic person. He is. <laughs> and uh, he's been going around the country uh, workshopping for faith leaders. So Reverend Sekou, uh 
is originally from St. Louis, and uh, so when Ferguson broke out, he returned home. And uh, one of the things that he's very effective at is doing the training uh, for nonviolent uh, disobedience. So he does a lot of those kinds. So he trained most of the folks in Ferguson. And he then was a part of the strategy team uh, and developed the plan for the uh, faith-based resistance to what happened in Charlottesville. Um, so those are kind of two key points, but he's been doing this through the years. Um, and he was arrested in Ferguson and, and went on trial mm. uh, to be sort of that public test case. Um, he's a brilliant strate- strategizer. He's a brilliant theologian. He's also a musician. I mean, he just can't con- <laughs> confine him or, or, uh, or define, define him, him. <laughs> yeah, right? So, but yeah, he and so we're we're eager to have him here in the Twin Cities and learn from him, um, and see how we can continue to build those kind of connections. Really cool. And as as we close, um, when I think about uh, the faith community here, and I've been in a number of conversations where um, you see churches wrestling or thinking through what are ways that they can. Um, operate outside of their church, the church doors, mm-hmm. you know, and they say, like, we need to get in a community more. And, and for some churches, they've been in that discussion for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Any advice for them? Don't be alone. Do it in partnership. Um, there are there are folks like the Stair Step folks and uh, ministerial alliances where you can do this together. Um, I think what's happening also is that um, a lot of young people are not engaged in organized religion, uh, whichever religion it might be, and so we have to be creative in the ways that we connect with with young people. I was just talking to Reverend Billy Russell from uh, Greater Friendship, who's also the chair of our board right now, and they did a concert choir. They put an album, put together an album of, uh, I guess you say CD album. Young people, 150 young people, and it, and at least a third of those folks had never been in a church. Mm. And they came and they sang gospel music and they experienced church. And one of the young people said, "I'm accepted for who I am," and that's the key. We got to accept people for who they are, mm-hmm. and uh, no matter who they are in our neighborhoods, communities, whether you're in Edina or you're in a community uh, in the rural areas or wherever. Uh, we have to, the church and faith institutions still need to play the central roles that they were called to do. And since you did a call out on philanthropy and our integrity, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, do you think the church has an integrity issue in terms of its purpose and its actions? Do you yes, think that there's a misalignment? Yes. So um, the th- same challenges that I had to address in Chicago, I had to address when I came to Minnesota Council Churches. It was a, mostly a white organization, well, all white initially. Now the four historic African-American denominations that are here in Minnesota are members. Um, but yeah, we had a white board, mostly white staff, and so that's part of the reason why I took the job on because I thought I, what I learned in Chicago, uh, we could hopefully try to do that work here. Um, and so what? So within our structure, we've empowered uh, African-Americans into all our leadership positions. We're uh, steadily diversifying our staff, uh, which means you have to look at the org chart and notice that at the top of the org chart it gets a lot wider. You've got to address all levels. And all that's intentional. It's effort. It's kind of recruiting you do. But what's interesting is um, I assumed I'd get pushback from this, um, from some of the predominantly white denominations. Uh, but what I've discovered is that the white denominations are aware that they have challenges when it comes to issues around diversity and equity. Um, and so they're happy for us to try to experiment and try some things that they might be able to learn from and, and move forward on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but yeah, there's, there's definite, and young, that's one of the reasons, there's a few reasons why young people are not going to church these days, but one of them is they read the Bible and it seems like churches were really diverse in the Bible and then they look at churches today and they don't see that. Mm-hmm. So, and then it gets you again, are these churches working around social justice issues? Are these churches welcoming to whoever comes to their door? I mean, these are kind of the things that now have kept a younger generation away from organized religion. So yeah, we, we have to work on our own integrity issue. <laughs> so. 
Good deal. So as, as we close, is there um, anything that you would like to share that I haven't asked? Oh, I think you've been pretty thorough. <laughs> so, but I do want to say thank you, and um, I am um, strong supporter of the Minneapolis Foundation and the kind of creative work you're trying to do here, and uh, particularly the, the, the work about uh, criminal justice and the reform and hopefully transformation that, that really needs to happen. So. Perfect. I guess I have one last question okay. that we can cut in. And um, I know you've got, because I'm going to ask you what books you yeah, might want to yeah. recommend. And so for our listeners that want to um, think more and study more about uh, the issues that we talked about today, um, do you have any recommendations for uh, books or resources that you'd like to share? Sure. Well, we both agree, go see Harriet. Yep. Um, we sure do. And Just Mercy. Yep, Just Mercy. And then um, I, I like to listen to The Daily. Uh, and they just did the 1619 uh, series of podcasts, which is a powerful look at the history uh, and the lingering effects of that history around race. Um, the the book that really helped me, but it's probably a, a more of a an academic geek kind of book, but uh, it's called Looking for Lorraine, and it's an autobiography on Lorraine Hansberry. Uh, and when I was in Chicago, the apartment that I lived in was, uh, I found out later, uh, after I'd already moved in, but it was called the Hansberry Building because her father had bought that as a part of the challenging the redlining and um, breaking the, the system in Chicago. And so Lorraine Hansberry, you know, Raisin in the Suns, what she's best known for, um, and lived a short life. But she had this creative partnership with James Baldwin and Nina Simone. And I'm always fascinated because I think in this work, the way we kind of have the vision and, and create new ideas is we have to sort of cross-pollinate in a whole lot of different ways. And just that just fascinated me. And with W.E.B. Du Bois as a mentor, I mean, it just like, wow, that was something. But there's a new book coming out. It's just out, I should say. It's on my shelf. I haven't read it yet. That looks at James Baldwin and William Buckley, who was sort of the conservative commentator that time, and they do a debate. And it's this amazing, so it looks at the historic moment, but then reflects it back to today in discussions on race called The Fires Upon Us uh, by Nicola Bucola. So that's, that's the next thing that's on my shelf to read. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. To listen to more episodes and learn about upcoming events, please visit conversationswithshonda.org. You can follow Shonda on Twitter at Shonda S. Baker. This is Sue Pak Kienitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Shonda.